0: Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, energized life that totally rocks. You're listening to Straight Talking Natural Health, a no BS podcast for busy women who want to ditch the fatigue, find balance and feel great with your host and naturopath Jules Galloway. Activator Probiotics is an Australian company with a range of evidence-based, condition-specific probiotics. Their range includes clinically researched products and specific probiotic strains which target a number of different health concerns beyond the gut, including low mood, sleep, low iron... Bone health and mild eczema. With an understanding of specific health effects of the gut microbiota, Activated Probiotics is helping practitioners improve the management of some of the most prevalent and chronic health concerns with probiotic solutions and education for their community. You can find out more by heading to activatedprobiotics.com.au or visit their Instagram and Facebook at Activated Probiotics. Today's guest is a complete microbiome nerd and passionate about educating people all about the far reaching effects that a healthy or an unhealthy microbiome can have on the human body. She's back again for part two of a three part series. When we were teeing this up uh, for this whole interview, there were like so many amazing topics being thrown around that we couldn't actually choose just one. So we ended up with three. Microbiome health is about so much more than just your gut or your poo symptoms or clearing bloating or IBS or constipation, although they're important too. Today, though, we will be talking about a very common issue, and that is iron deficiency in women. We've always known that the diet is important to maintaining good iron levels, but some people are still low. Did you know that your microbiome can be tweaked to improve your iron stores? In case you missed the intro for this awesome woman last week, here's a refresher. She is a speaker, a writer, an educator, and a qualified naturopath. She has more than 15 years of experience educating on all aspects of complementary and integrative health. She has lectured to undergraduate students in Australia, the UK, and the US, and delivered naturopathic education to healthcare practitioners all around the world. She is also the Director of Education at Activated Probiotics, so she 's across all the latest studies and research. Woo Please welcome back to the show. The very lovely Rebecca Edwards Woo! Hi, girls. Hello, <laughs> Thank you so much for having me back i 'm so excited to talk about this topic. Me too. Like this is one that we see so often in clinic and like women are trying to like boost their, well, and men, well, you know, and men, but mostly women trying to boost their iron with diet and supplements and all kinds of things and they're just still not getting their iron levels up. And like so many people are resorting to having to go and get iron infusions because they've dropped so low that like, you know, the ass has fallen out of their iron levels basically. and um, And, yeah, like often... We're really, we've, as practitioners, we're really at a loss to know what to do with these people. We're like, mm-hmm, I really think you should go get the infusion now because nothing else
1: is working. So, I I hear you. I absolutely hear you. And that's a conversation that, you know, I've seen played out in the naturopathic community so often over the last, you know, couple of decades, really, is practitioners constantly asking each other for recommendations on the best type of iron supplement. And I just want to scream and say it's not about the iron supplement. It's actually not even about the iron intake, it's all about the absorption.
0: Yep. And so I know for a long time we've been, we've been toying with that as well not toying with it we've been working with that as naturopaths and going okay well there must be some sort of issue with the gut that's preventing the absorption so we've been doing stool testing and all kinds of testing in the gut to try and find like nasty pathogens that could be the reason for why the iron's not absorbing but that looks like that's kind of an older way of looking at things now
1: Well, it's part, I mean, it's still part of the new, more informed way of looking at things, but it's, you know, it's so much of a, I guess, a bigger picture than we really realized that it's not, you know, the very first thing really to, to put to bed is the idea that iron is purely about eating meat. You know, it's not when we look at, we look at epidemiological research around the world and we see that worldwide, you know, vegetarians are not more likely to be iron deficient than meat. Uh, to the meat eaters. It's not, you know, it's not about the steak. It's also not, you know, it's not necessarily about the quality of iron supplements to be bluntly honest. Once again, the research shows us that realistically all supplemental types of iron perform about the same in clinical research. So then we have to look deeper into the body and say, well, what is it about? And it's, you know, it's not one particular thing, but there is some really amazing research showing us that, the, you know, the composition of the microbiome can have an influence on, on both the absorption of iron, the health of the digestive tract, which itself absorbs iron and on uh, the side effects that iron supplements can give rise to. So it's a, you know, it's a pretty exciting discovery.
0: Yeah. So let's backtrack just a little bit and set the scene, shall we? why are we so iron deficient these days is, like, where, oh, is, where is it question. all going horribly
1: wrong oh my goodness oh my goodness so you know you, oh, you we really should be in the same room because you really should be kind of holding me back from talking about this I could talk <laughs> hours and hours and hours so essentially let's blame let's for this one let's blame evolution okay because the human body has evolved over millennia To be very, very poor at absorbing iron. And that has been, you know, that's been a protective mechanism of historical significance from the days when our diet included not a super amount of iron. So, you know, really going back to those kind of hunter gatherer days when the early humans would have only eaten meat once every few weeks. Our bodies evolved to. Really interestingly, something that, that it's, it's almost puzzling. Iron is the only nutrient we have no pathway of excretion for. There is no mechanism via which the human body loses iron. Once iron is absorbed into our bloodstream, it is continuously recycled. It is not used up. It is not lost every time. So, for example, we, you know, we, a lot of the iron in our body is kept as part of a protein inside our red blood cells. But as our red blood cells reach the end of their life cycle, they are essentially broken down like old cars. You know, they're broken down and all the various bits are recycled, including the iron. So any iron that makes it into our bloodstream never leaves. The only way that humans lose iron in any significant amount is via blood loss. And, you know, we're kind of pretty, we've learned to, you know, try to avoid blood loss wherever possible. So... This is kind of leads us into the first part of answering your question. And I apologize massively for the long answer. This is why we see more women with less than optimal iron levels than men, because women are the variety of the species who are actually frequently or regularly losing iron in the form of menstruation, obviously men, because their iron, you know, their blood levels are not fluctuating in the same way as women. Um, Their iron levels generally remain more stable. So the first part of the answer to your question, why are we not very good at maintaining optimal iron levels? Is because we're really bad at absorbing it. And why are we bad at absorbing it? Because we don't have any way of losing it. The next part of the question is why does it matter? And it matters because iron is iron is a little bit of a double agent. You know, iron is a double edged sword. It's a foe as much as it's a friend. And it really is such a great example of, you know, that old kind of often inappropriately used saying of everything in moderation. Iron is the most important nutrient to have in moderation. Too little iron will leave you feeling exhausted and breathless and with poor memory and not able to walk upstairs properly but too much iron will, well, in the most extreme sense, will lead to um, liver destruction, joint inflammation, and ultimately um, kind of, you know, not not an, an amazing, amazing situation of health at all. Um, the, the other thing to look at from a kind of a pathogenic, I guess, point of view is that iron is a fuel source for um, viruses and bacteria for, um, you know, it acts as almost like a Trojan horse and it provides a an energy source for potentially pathogenic microbes coming into the body. So when we put all that together, we see that our bodies have historically benefited from tightly controlling the absorption of iron because too much iron is not good for us and we don't have a way of, uh, of losing it. To get back to the next part of your question, why are we, you know, why hasn't evolution kind of kept up with modern living? Essentially, our diets and lifestyle have changed too fast for us to develop an iron excretory pathway over the last few generations. But I'm going to come back to another word that I used a lot in the last podcast we recorded together, Jules. You know, you know what's coming, you know who it is. <laughs> it's the old baddie inflammation. And this time, though, there's a different angle to put on inflammation because, first of all, inflammation is one of the baddies hampering iron absorption, but inflammation also is massively fueled by too much iron again. So it's this here is that bidirectional relationship that nature loves to give us where, you know, one kind of situation really feeds into another situation, perpetuating the first and round and round we go. What we tend to see in our clinical practices and any practitioner listening to this will immediately know what I'm talking about is patients with high levels of chronic systemic inflammation Have a really hard time lifting their iron levels. So, this is all of those patients we see with autoimmune conditions like Hashimoto's, like type 1 diabetes, um, you know, other autoimmune conditions, MS, psoriasis, for example. Um, It's also patients we see, uh, you know, with other inflammatory processes going on. You will not get these people absorbing iron happily and optimally until you have the inflammation under control. And the really interesting part of this little kind of puzzle is such recent knowledge. I mean, you know, Jules, we were talking last time that you and I were students of naturopathy roughly the same time, kind of 20-something years ago. (laughs) And at that point, the scientific world was not aware of a really important protein called hepcidin, which was only discovered in i think it was 2007 you know long after long after people of our vintage had already been set loose into the world to treat patients as naturopaths god uh, help them all <laughs> right i mean I do, I do look back to my early days of clinical practice and think oh my goodness how did i ever help anyone because i feel like i've i've learnt the bulk of my knowledge in in recent years but you know that's that's the journey for all new practitioner i guess but hepsidin hepsidin is has only been known of for the past kind of 10, 15 years. And it turns out that hepcidin is really the missing factor in understanding iron absorption. It's a protein produced by the liver and it is produced in response to inflammation amongst other things. And it is the factor which most tightly controls the flow of iron from the digestive tract into the bloodstream, essentially. So it's, you know, we're really talking about a moving, you know, actively moving parts in understanding the the journey of iron from your food into your red blood cells. Um, and it's exciting to be, you know, to be working with a system where science is really only just putting the finishing touches on understanding the whole thing. Is
0: there a test for
1: hepcidin that people can just
0: order fairly easily through a doctor or a naturopath?
1: um no there's not but it's what i always <laughs> encourage well yeah what i always encourage people to do though is you know again this won't be any surprise to you look at the totality of the presentation in front of you if you have or if you are a patient with you know with an inflammatory type condition, you've got the iron studies results in front of you. You can see that, you know, there's a long-standing, uh, long-standing story of suboptimal iron levels. There, you are very likely to be dealing with someone who is, you know, as part of an an inflammatory state, um, producing relatively high levels of of hepcidin. Um, can we, can we talk about the pathway of iron and how it gets into your bloodstream? Because that is super fun. Absolutely. Let's
0: put our nerdy glasses yes, on. And go for it. Totally.
1: Ab- yeah. You just picture me with my big nerdy glasses on. And uh, this honestly is one of the my the most favorite things of mine to talk about is iron absorption and you know it it was always my favorite subject to teach when I taught nutritional biochemistry. I would always get pretty excitable when it was time to talk about the absorption of iron. <laughs> I know, I know. The words biochemistry and excitement don't normally go together, but when it comes to iron absorption, they really, really do because iron is absorbed in a different way from any other nutrient and it is basically a miracle that any of us end up with any iron in our blood at all when you realise what has to happen for iron to make it from, you know, from your food into your red blood cells. So, you know, the first thing that has to happen is you... Um, you have to be consuming iron and that's oh, that's another interesting story. So, you know, once again, we are very used to blaming people not eating enough meat, for example, for iron iron deficiency and iron um, poor absorption, but it's it's not that simple. As I said before, you don't need to eat meat to have healthy iron levels, um, but you do need to be at, in the modern Western diet, most of us but consuming enough iron in the foods we eat. Iron is found not just in meat, iron is found in legumes, in nuts and seeds, and also in vegetables as well. It's very small amounts, but small amounts add up if you absorb them well. So first of all, you have to be consuming the iron, then you have to swallow it, it goes down into your stomach. The stomach, it's always, I always like really like to set the scene and kind of just give some really basic information, but I feel like it's important to, you know, we're, we've all got this information at the front of our brains. Your stomach is the first part of your intestines. It's essentially a bag full of acid, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. The acid in your stomach is strong enough to digest your own finger. If you manage to somehow poke yourself inside your stomach, <laughs> please, no one, yeah, try no, this. no one try this, no one try this. <laughs>
0: Don't use anyone else's finger either.
1: No, I know, but the like the mental visual is quite fun, you know. Oh, but anyway. So yeah, thanks the, for that. I'm gonna have yeah. nightmares. Carry on. <laughs> Well, the, you know, human body is is kind of stuff of nightmares, really. So you've got this crazy strong acid inside your stomach. And anyone who's ever experienced acid reflux knows how strong that acid is because a burning esophagus is not very much fun. But your stomach acid needs to be so strong for so many reasons. One of which, of course, is it's actually antibacterial, that your stomach acid, one of its main jobs is to kill any bacteria that you swallow. But, you know, that's, an, that's a conversation for another day. One of the other things that this acid has to do is it has to uh, break food down. um, And it's particularly good at breaking proteins down. And it's, you know, it's a protein bond that binds iron coming in from your diet, uh, or it's bound to an amino acid, the you know, a, a, a smallest subunit of protein in your, uh, in your food. And that bond has to be broken to allow the iron um, to be free, essentially, To be absorbed in the intestines. So, the first thing that has to happen is you have to have nice, healthy stomach acid. So, straight away, we see an issue where we see a lot of people who are, you know, for example, taking medication to suppress stomach acid production, taking lots of antacids, or even drinking lots of um, substances, which, um, like milk, for example, which is, um, you know, essentially an antacid being so high in a very alkaline mineral, calcium. So, stomach, first of all, you have to have nice, healthy levels of stomach acid then the stomach contents after being churned around and food being broken down into a kind of a thick soupy like consistency the stomach contents then pass into the intestinal tract so the intestinal tract is oh meters and meters and meters of tubing that lead from the stomach Um, go on a kind of a a very coiled up tour of your abdominal cavity and then exit um, uh, through the rectum and anus out the other end. Uh, But there's a lot that happens between the stomach and the exit. And the first thing that happens is the, uh, the absorption of nutrients. So the first part of the intestinal tract, the top of the small intestine is the duodenum. And it's across the wall of the duodenum where most of our nutrient absorption takes place, including the absorption of iron. So if you picture in your mind the small intestine being like a tube and on the inside of that tube is the big soupy, mushy mess of all the food you just ate. And on the outside of that tube is all of the blood vessels which feed into the lining of the intestinal tract and carry out to the liver the nutrients and the substances um, of the, the byproducts, I guess, of absorption, um, the absor- the nutrients and the, the micronutrients and the macronutrients of what you've just eaten. So your iron, which is in its free form, has passed into the intestinal tract, but then how does it get from the inside of your intestinal tract into your bloodstream? Several things have to happen to it. The first thing that has to happen to to dietary iron is that it needs to be it needs to be released, or oh, sorry, it needs to be reduced, and this is because dietary iron, non-heme dietary iron, comes into the body in a form called ferric iron. And this ferric iron is represented in the kind of um, the chemical representation Fe3+. And that 3 plus is denoting the number of electrons that this particular um, substance has in its outer membrane and the electrical charge that it carries. The thing to know is that iron in the Fe3 plus form cannot cross into the, uh, the cells which line the intestinal tract, the enterocytes. In order to cross into the enterocytes, this ferric iron needs to be reduced to a substance called ferrous iron. And ferrous iron is Fe2+. So for it to go from Fe3+, to Fe2+, it needs to be reduced. And that reduction takes place in the brush border. So now we have to think about your intestinal environment, the duodenum, as being almost like a fantasy forest. So this is how I always kind of set the scene when I'm describing the absorption of iron. If you imagine the lining of your duodenum to be a little bit like a child's drawing of hills. You know how when kids draw hills, they kind of draw hills like up and down, like not, you know, kind of some gradually rolling gradient type hills. They draw really fairly dramatic hills. If you imagine that your duodenal environment is just a, a, a series, a landscape of very dramatic up and down hills, those hills uh, represent, in my mind anyway, what we talk about as the, the villi, and the villi are finger like projections of intestinal lining that wave around inside the duodenum, inside that tube of your intestinal tract. Now, if you go back to thinking about them like, like nice green hills, the hills are green because they're covered in grass. And the grass growing on these hills, let's think about this grass as being microvilli. Microvilli are the microscopic hair like projections lining all over the villi. So we've got the villi are like waggling fingers in the middle of the tube. And then on top of the waggling fingers are absolutely microscopic little hair like projections called the microvilli. Or picture them as, you know, nice green hills. So in the grass on the green hills, we, we call the microvilli the brush border. And this, these blades of grass or microvilli, they perform a really crucial function. They produce a whole raft of digestive enzymes to help with the breakdown of nutrients and make different substances more absorbable. And a great example here is one of the enzymes they produce is called lactase. And lactase, of course, is the enzyme necessary for breaking down the disaccharide lactose, which is found in all mammal milk, um, enabling humans to absorb the individual sugars found in milk and not get all the symptoms of lactose intolerance, which is what happens when you're not making enough lactase. One of the enzymes, along with lactase, produced in the brush border is a substance with a really romantic name of cytochrome B561 or duodenal cytochrome B or ferroreductase. So ferroreductase is an enzyme which reduces iron. So this is the magic substance you need to take away um, or to alter the electrons in uh, the membrane of the ferric the fe3 plus iron to simplify it to fe2 plus iron so to sum up that whole really long story essentially if you don't have healthy grass growing on healthy hills you will not absorb your dietary iron well at all because you need these healthy brush border enzymes to make your iron absorbable so where that brings us I know I know it's oh, it's just it's such a cool story it's a long one but it's a cool one this is the longest amount of time anyone's been able to keep me from talking on my own
0: podcast I love it no this you have you're getting some sort of gold star for this is awesome keep going (laughs) I'm sitting here going I'm sitting here going and what could possibly go wrong during this process?
1: oh my goodness it's it's more a matter of what could go right because this is you can kind of see what could go wrong here is any kind of intestinal damage or inflammation. And this kind of takes us on a slight side story here, but super relevant. This is why chronic iron deficiency is a big waving red flag for celiac disease. Yes. Celiac disease, of course, is you know, another autoimmune disease where the body has an intense inflammatory reaction to gluten. And one of the consequences of celiac, untreated celiac disease is destruction of the brush border. And what happens is that you know there's a huge inflammatory response in the endomycium, which is kind of the, the substance just under the surface of the duodenum, and it causes the villi, so the, the, the hills themselves, it causes the villi to essentially um, lose their blood supply, blood supply, atrophy, and decrease in size. So those hills become flat and the grass can't grow on them anymore. So you stop producing those brush border enzymes. So anyone who's listening who has celiac disease, you know, you'll probably remember before you were diagnosed that you weren't tolerating dairy product well because you weren't producing lactase and you weren't absorbing iron well because you weren't producing ferroreductase because your poor old grassy hills were, you know, dead and lying flat basically. So any intestinal damage will restrict the body's ability to reduce dietary iron and complete that first step. In the crazy journey of absorption that iron has to undergo. So that means anyone with um, damage to the intestine that could be caused by, oh gosh, there's a long list, um, uh, overuse of alcohol is one, Uh, you know, radiation therapy, chemotherapy. So we see poor iron absorption in a lot of cancer patients. There are some medications that can contribute um, really interestingly there's also now being written about in the literature non-celiac gluten reactions so people who have many of the symptoms of celiac disease but don't have the you know the genes or the um, the presentation of celiac disease um, there's also and this is one for all the you know all the naturopaths out there um in presence of intestinal bacteria in the small intestine will also interfere with the duodenal environment and the absorption here as well. So, things like SIBO, for example, uh, Helicobacter pylori can play a role here. So, what you said before, Jules, about um, infections and bacterial overgrowth, that's really relevant for sure. So that's that's step one. The next thing that has to happen. Everyone take a breath. But, <laughs> but the first the first thing is we need to see iron safely into the enterocytes. The enterocytes are the cells which make up the innermost lining of the uh, the intestinal tract. So again, picturing our intestinal tract as a tube, that innermost lining is um, made up of enterocytes, the enterocytes take the iron inside and they hold onto it. The thing is that most of the iron that enters enterocytes never makes it into the bloodstream. And there's a really interesting reason for that, and that is that the intestinal you know the the enterocytes and the, the the cells that line our intestinal tract are the shortest living cells in the in the human body. They only have a life cycle of six, seven, eight days. So most of the time, the iron that they're holding onto never makes it out the other side into your bloodstream. It's lost when those cells are shed into the lining into the intestinal tract and they actually become part of your poop and um, they leave the body as part of your poop. So most of the iron that goes in your mouth just goes straight out the other end. Um, It's either never absorbed at all or it's absorbed into the enterocytes and then it's not passed through into the bloodstream because, remember, we're not losing iron from the bloodstream, so we don't have a high requirement for replacement. We will only replace iron into the bloodstream when there has been essentially loss of iron, largely through bleeding. Okay, so the iron has made it into the enterocytes. How does it make it into the bloodstream? The next thing that has to happen is picture, picture the enterocyte as being like a, I don't know, just for the sake of simplicity, picture it as like a, a rectangle. So one side of the re- one long side of the rectangle is facing into the inner of the digestive tract and that's where the iron which has been reduced from fe3 plus to fe2 plus it's now been taken up on that side it's now inside the enterocyte the other side of the enterocyte um, interacts with your bloodstream so the other side um, is leading onto your bloodstream and this is how nutrients are absorbed So, your vitamins pass into the enterocyte and then straight out the other side into your bloodstream, but not iron. If we imagine on the other side of that enterocyte, imagine there's a little door, and let's call that door ferroportin, which comes from the Latin ferro meaning iron and portin meaning door. So, it is literally a door for iron. That door is closed, it's shut. It's shut until there is need for iron coming from the other side and that door creaks open a little bit and the iron can then dash through and make it into the bloodstream where it can then be incorporated into hemoglobin um, or the other things that happen to iron in our bodies. So what we have to work out now is Who controls the opening of that door and who allows, what processes allow iron to pass from inside the enterocyte into the bloodstream? Now what I want you to picture is a big fat boot kicking that door closed. And do you know what that boot is called? It's called (laughs) hepcidin. So hepcidin is this protein produced by the liver. Remember, it's produced in response largely to inflammation So no matter how iron deficient you are, that door, that iron door will not swing open if you've got a big heavy boot constantly kicking it closed. And that heavy boot is worn by the foot of inflammation, essentially. (laughs) So this is how it all kind of starts to come together, that you need to have healthy stomach acid, healthy intestinal tract lining, healthy brush border, healthy enzyme production, and then you need to essentially not have high levels of inflammation constantly creating this protein hepsidin to keep kicking that door closed. We want that door to be able to swing open freely when necessary to allow iron into the bloodstream to replace whatever need the body has. Is that not the coolest but kind of creepiest fairy tale ever, Jules?
0: It did kind of play out like a bit of a Disney cartoon with a little bit of Game of Thrones thrown in. I thought. Well, we I need. Did, I, yeah. I was getting some good visuals. You, you would be an amazing
1: children's author. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many children want to learn about biochemistry. I'm not sure. I oh, know <laughs> there could be a market there, mate. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, my kid loves learning about poos and farts, but that's um, that's that's more on on you know, on his level, really. Um, but yeah, we just need we just need a you know a Disney princess to come along and wave a magic wand. Um, but you know that can that can be the microbiome. I guess can be the Disney princess making everything sparkly and better. Um, so it's you know the job really of the thinking practitioner is to put all these pieces of the uh, Disney story cross Game of Thrones cross Grimm's fairy tale together. Work out where your patient is, you know, dancing with the bad witch, if you like, and work out how to wave the magic wand. I'm, I'm taking this metaphor way too far. Wave the magic wand and, and see the smooth absorption of iron, how to really influence that hepcidin ferroportin axis, how to influence the, you know, the duodenal lining. And make everything better because, you know, another part of the story is that, you know, you'll know this, Jules, and and all of your listeners will know it too. Iron supplements are horrible. Everyone hates them. They are one of the prescribed medications with the lowest percentage of compliant patients because... Iron supplements make you nauseous, give you gastritis, make you constipated, make you gassy, and ultimately can give you really unpleasant, stinky black poo as well. Nobody, nobody wants any of this. So the way I kind of always look at the iron story is how can we help our patients absorb iron better? without having to use the very blunt instrument that is an iron supplement, which brings with it all of these negative side effects. How can we work with the body to just make this magic dance of iron absorption glide along a little bit more smoothly? I love it. Can I ask a question about hepcidin? Mm
0: what is the point of kicking that door shut? Is it because if the door remained open, the person would then become more inflamed? Is it trying to control the inflammation in some way in the body? Yes.
1: And that you've just, what you've just described is hemochromatosis. So hemochromatosis is a condition where someone under produces hepcidin. So it's, I mean, hemochromatosis is not super well understood. Um, There are hypotheses that it's an autoimmune disease. We know that it's linked with particular genetic expressions. And what happens in someone with hemochromatosis is that they lack, just as putting it way too simply, but think of it like this. They lack the gene for um, the normal production of hepcidin. So in someone with hemochromatosis, their iron door is flapping open. And so iron essentially has a free pass from the enterocyte into the bloodstream. And the consequences of hemochromatosis are joint inflammation and damage, um, liver inflammation and damage, heart inflammation and damage, blood vessel inflammation and damage, and increased susceptibility to infections. And that really highlights all of the reasons why human evolution has brought us to this point where we very tightly control the absorption of iron because iron is a super powerful pro-oxidant it will cause tissue damage and it will create a fuel source for these um, you know pathogenic infections So if you want to know what would happen if we just left those iron doors flapping open, um, you know, read up on hemochromatosis and what those people can go through if it is not appropriately managed. And we've got a pretty good idea of how we got to this point of controlling iron absorption so tightly.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, It's there's so many things that we need to look at here with every single patient, every single client. Um, like starting from the top down, like stomach acid, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and then in- inflammation. Like that's almost I I would say almost ninety five percent of my clients would have one or more of those things. Absolutely, and especially your female mm-hmm. clients, right? Well, that's that's ninety five percent of my clients. <laughs> Oh yeah, yes. That's right. Hello to the three men who are on my books yes, right now.
1: Right, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But you know, it's we know that we know that women are more prone to autoimmune disease. We know that women essentially are more likely to present with an inflammation-driven condition, mm-hmm. and then add on top of that the fact that women are in their reproductive years are also losing iron, and whereas men are not. Um, and we you know we can see how this perfect storm eventuates yeah
0: all right talk microbiome to me oh, how exciting okay
1: so <laughs> <I> <laughs> know
0: right. to push I... your buttons it's so good <laughs> <laughs> <Bing>. <laughs>
1: if I wasn't excited by the biochemistry into the microbiome so the you know the microbiome it's a it's a goodie in this story it's it's the magic the magic fairy the fairy godmother whatever you want to call her um, the microbiome is a main character in this kind of fairy tale in, in a few different directions the first thing is that if we get back to the idea of iron supplements, one, of, you know, I said before that I'm not a big fan of iron supplementation and I, I never have been, even before I knew about hepcidin, even before I really understood the role of the microbiome, I've always been really, really hesitant about iron supplements because of, first of all, all of those side effects I mentioned before, the fact that people really generally don't tolerate them well, and you know the form of iron doesn't make a huge difference to either the uh the tolerability or the rate of absorption um it's not the form that's really important it's the the dose um, so iron supplements lots of side effects, but also ironically. Iron supplements increase hepcidin. So remember hepcidin, the big boot that slams the door closed? The more iron supplementation someone takes, the more hepcidin they produce for two reasons. The first is that hepcidin rises in response to an elevation of iron in the body. So when you put more iron in the body, you create more hepcidin because remember, what we don't want is too much iron. We don't want that at all costs. The other reason is that each think of each iron capsule or tablet is like a little bullet of inflammation because iron, remember, it is an oxidant. It is a tissue damaging substance. When you take an iron supplement, you set off a little hepcidin bomb. So every time you take iron, you are significantly increasing the amount of hepcidin being produced and that door is being shut even tighter. This is the ultimate irony, that when you've got these patients who are told, you know, oh, you know, my doctor or my practitioner says I need to take a really high dose of iron, you're actually perpetuating a cycle of inflammation and further hampering iron absorption. Luckily, researchers have kind of, you know, put together a little blueprint for us who see patients on how to, patients who need to take iron supplements, how to dose them appropriately. And we now understand that it takes about 48 hours for hepcidin levels to subside. Hence the new, new-ish recommendation for dosing iron every second day, no more frequently than every 48 hours. And the sole reason behind that is it allows for the, um, you know, it allows for hepcidin to subside, hepcidin levels to drop, and ferroportin to um, become a little bit more active again. So getting back to the microbiome, what? Um, And one of the consequences of iron supplementation is that it actually changes your microbiome. So remember I said before that iron acts as a fuel source for bacteria Well, that includes bacteria in your intestinal tract. When you give someone an iron supplement, they're only absorbing a tiny, tiny percentage of the iron. Most of the iron in an iron supplement keeps going through the intestinal tract, through the small intestine, into the large intestine, and the large intestine is where most of your microbiome is located. So unabsorbed iron changes the composition in the intestinal tract, and actually skews the microbial communities which live there. What you see when you have unabsorbed iron passing through the large intestine, you see a decrease in colonies of lactobacillus, you see a decrease in colonies of bifidobacterium, a decrease in Firmicutes, you see an increase in proteobacteria, um, enterobacteria, E. coli, enterococcus, bacterioides, um, clostridium, salmonella, shigella, campylobacter, citrobacter. You are skewing the microbial composition because iron preferentially feeds certain microbes over others. So our big aim is not to have unabsorbed iron in the microbiome. So that's one pathway via which iron absorption iron supplements interact with the microbiome if we want to put a more positive spin on it we can say that the presence of certain strains of bacteria actually are the good fairy and enhance the uptake. And several really exciting studies have found one particular strain of probiotic, lactobacillus plantarum 299V, actually enhances iron absorption. So this is another case where a probiotic can be beneficial for a process or a condition which we don't usually associate probiotics with you know like we were saying last time probiotics we used to think about them as things that live in yogurt that help with gut symptoms well it turns out that this particular strain of probiotic the plantarum 299v very specifically enhances iron absorption and there are several studies that have been done and what they found is that this strain can enhance the bioavailability of dietary iron. So, you know, that incredibly complex story that I just spoke about at great length or too much length earlier, (laughs) that story is influenced positively by Plantarum 299V what it does is this particular strain of probiotic produces a ferric reducing metabolite called P-hydroxyphenylactic acid or HLPA. So this substance actually assists with the brush border or, you know, the blades of grass on the hills. It assists with the uh, ferroreductase enzyme to reduce that dietary iron from that FE3 plus ferric form down to the FE2 plus form where it can be taken up by the enterocyte. So it actually helps to make dietary iron more bioavailable. It also has an anti-inflammatory effect on the duodenal environment itself. So where there has been tissue damage, like in the case of, you know, some of the things I listed earlier, um, overuse of alcohol, certain medications, celiac disease, um, it can help to reduce that physical inflammation and therefore enhance the expression of ferroreductase in the brush border. Then because of this anti-inflammatory effect, Remember that inflammation is really, you know, the the foot in the boot of hepcidin. You see a reduction in hepcidin as well. So, as we reduce inflammation, we normalize hepcidin. Then there's also the fact that this strain of probiotic, the Plantarum 299V, is one of the strains that increases the secretion of mucin, my old favorite. Hello, old friend. (laughs) Hi. Print up those I love mucin t-shirts. Right. So <laughs> mucin is, of course, a protective anti-inflammatory layer in the intestinal tract. But mucin also um, harbors lots of antimicrobial peptides and other anti-inflammatory, oh god, secretions and all sorts of goodies. So just by increasing the amount of mucin, we are also um, creating a positive environment for oh, a healthier microbiome, and therefore a greater anti-inflammatory environment as well. Then we oh, there's but there is more. So the there are mucin iron complexes um, being produced and held in that mucin layer, which prevent precipitation of iron increase interaction with DMT-1. Oh, DMT-1 is a whole nother story. Um, that's <laughs> Divalent Mineral Transporter-1. More on that in a second. Um. So interaction with DMT1 co-localized with mucin vesicles near the luminal surface. Essentially what we're saying is it once again helps the body, helps that process of iron absorption, making iron more bioavailable. So what DMT1 is, this is actually a really interesting story and I think might be a bit of a light bulb moment for some of your listeners. You know how you are always advised, if taking an iron supplement, not to take it at the same time as anything with too much calcium or too much zinc. The reason for that is because of this DMT1 protein or divalent mineral transporter 1. This is a protein which is one of the factors necessary in carrying iron um, across the enterocyte border again. But think about this, this protein, the way I always describe this in my lectures is think of it like a bus and it's got a certain number of seats in it, but this, this bus is not just for iron. It's for any mineral or any divalent mineral, any mineral. And, but once the seats are full, they're full. And if you don't get a seat, you get left behind. Now, if this bus is full of, for example, calcium It means that iron won't get a ticket and it won't get a ride across the membrane into the enterocyte Um, in the same way that if it's full of iron, um, you won't be giving a ride to zinc. So this is another reason we need to be so careful with iron supplements. Too much iron in the duodenal environment will take up all the seats on the bus and stop calcium or zinc or molybdenum or a number of other minerals from crossing into the enterocyte and therefore being absorbed. And does that mean we should be
0: taking the iron on an empty stomach before we have a meal because that
1: meal is going to naturally contain calcium and zinc? Ideally, yes. The best way to take an iron supplement, if an iron supplement is necessary, is to take it on an empty stomach either first thing in the morning or last thing at night. And the reason for that is because hepsidin, you know, the big bad boot slamming the door closed, Hepsidin has a diurnal rhythm and it is lowest first thing in the morning. It peaks throughout the middle of the day and drops again in the evening. So you want to take advantage of hepsidin being lower by taking your iron supplement either at either end of the day when hepcidin levels are naturally lower so there are lots and lots of different things coming together so my advice around taking iron if it is necessary and sometimes it is if you know i'm not a fan but there are certainly times when someone has reached the point where iron supplementation is going to be necessary my advice is take it first thing in the morning. Um, with a dose of Lactobacillus plantarum two nine nine V, because of the um, the abilities this strain has at enhancing absorption, and uh, this is uh, this is relevant if someone doesn't if someone can tolerate iron supplements so many people find that taking them on an empty stomach isn't possible for them because of the irritation and the nausea that they create for those people i would say take your iron supplement with a meal still try to do it first thing in the morning though but take it with a meal and with your plantarum 299v probiotic when we come to people who um, whose iron levels or well, iron absorption needs a little bit of a helping hand, but we're not using iron supplements. What I would advise here is take your Plantarum 299V with an iron-containing meal to enhance the absorption of that dietary iron the best possible way. Mm.
0: Interesting because we often have our iron-containing meal at lunch or
1: dinner, not yep.
0: breakfast. Like no That's one's right. Downing steak at breakfast time. Well,
1: okay. There's a few people who are. I, I don't know. There might, be some weird, there might be some weirdos out there. Yeah, but oh, again, it it's <laughs> again if we think about evolution and why this is, you know, we've just got to remember that our it has been to our historical benefit to keep our iron levels tightly controlled. And really interestingly, you're actually far better off having slightly lower. Iron levels in your body than slightly higher. And there's a direct correlation between lifetime hemoglobin status and longevity. People who live the longest are those generally who have hemoglobin levels slightly below what is considered optimal. Um, And that's really interesting research out of, for example, the blue zones, you know, and, and other studies of really long lived populations. So we know that it has been to our historical advantage to keep our iron levels so tightly controlled. And actually that may be a potential explanation for um, anemia of pregnancy as well, that it may actually be a physiological condition, not a pathological condition. And, you know, there is this hypothesis that pregnant women's bodies deliberately restrict iron to protect the developing fetus from potential infection, which is fascinating.
0: That's really cool like our bodies are doing so much more than we realize all the time all the time uh, if someone is celiac and they're listening to this and they're like ah my brush border's shot yeah
1: <laughs> what do they do um well, obviously, a gluten-free diet is the most important thing because any hint of gluten will set off that mass endomycial inflammation, which is really the you know the the mechanism that destroys the brush border. But uh, so assuming they're on their gluten-free diet, definitely introducing Lactobacillus plantarum two nine nine V is is going to be really important in helping to um, to optimize iron absorption. So. Yeah. I uh, think it can also, you know, because it can upregulate protective epithelial cell responses. Um, it may, you know, it may actually be a great modulating probiotic for someone with celiac disease anyway, uh, because it has been found to reduce the severity of mucosal inflammation. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's such a like a sad and annoying thing, really, that by the time people find out they're celiac, like they've been eating gluten for decades. Quite That's often.
1: right, and there is, you know, there's often really significant physical damage in the duodenum. Yeah, um, you know, I'm I'm generally hopeful that with more understanding of the uh The genetic polymorphisms associated with celiac we may may be entering an era of better screening, perhaps you know maybe maybe again, I'm just grasping at silver linings there, but that's that's something I'm really hopeful of that in the future we'll become better at screening who is likely to develop celiac disease based on genetics and catching yeah. it before before you reach that you know total destruction of the the microvilli. yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, thoughts on iron infusions if a person is super super low. I yeah. know
1: I know about that. Yes. Really, that
0: oxidative stress, like yeah. inflammatory response, that often can happen.
1: Yes, and this is something that you know that I'm asked about a lot in the context of of this particular probiotic strain. Um, it, can you give it to someone who has had an iron infusion and 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 along the same lines, can you give it to someone with hemochromatosis? Will it essentially make them absorb too much iron? And the answer is no, absolutely. It's very much a modulant. It's not throwing those ferroportin doors open. What it's doing is reducing inflammation to allow the body to do what it needs to do. So if you have a patient who's had to have an iron infusion, then I would absolutely look at starting them on Plantarum 299V to hopefully help normalize iron absorption pathways so they're not in the position of needing an iron infusion again. And, you know, an iron infusion can be an amazing and beauteous thing for people who are feeling the absolute, you know, the awful effects of very low iron. And a lot of people find them, um, you know, they they feel a lot better quite quickly. But a lot of people find they, I've often had people describe it as being hit like a truck because essentially it is a huge influx of iron which brings with it, like you said, Jules, that you know in you know, huge inflammatory kind of bombshell and um, you know it, it, these these people will have very high hepcidin levels because of the amount of iron that's been infused into their bloodstream, so the plantarum two nine nine v I think will be really helpful there
0: yeah, what we often see as well uh, like in clinic yeah I know or I would say nearly all naturopaths, if not every single naturopath has come across this where people come to us and they they will say, look, I've had an infusion and I like felt rotten for a couple of days. Then I felt great and then I slowly went back to the way that I was and a year later there I was having another infusion and the doctor just said to, you know, you just might have to have more infusions in the future. But now we know. Like now the, through our chat today, like there's been so many points along the way that we need to be checking in anyone who's got low iron or is struggling to get up their iron um you know that stomach acid that small intestine that brush border like there's so much going on uh, that that naturopaths can look out for and help people with too
1: absolutely and i think naturopaths and you know nutritionists are almost uniquely placed to be able to help here Um, because you know this profession has such a good understanding of of inflammation and homeostasis and how everything fits together and you know this new research on this probiotic strain just so neatly fits into all of that
0: yeah it's just a it it just it slots in it doesn't upset anything else that we're already doing like yeah you're right it comes in and does the little fairy godmother sprinkles over everything. right a little bit of little bit of sparkle (laughs) sparkle magic wand yay all right well look Rebecca thank you so much for that amazing nerdy geek out tour of the digestive system and the iron transportation like that was so fun um yeah I really really appreciate uh all the research that you've done on this and the way that you put it together for both practitioners and lay people so that we can understand it properly so that we are addressing all the possible reasons for why
1: uh things go wrong. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jules, and thank you for indulging my geeky side. It's just the best <laughs> let that side out. It doesn't doesn't get doesn't get a run very often. So it's it's really fun. Thank you. Oh, we'll, we'll
0: always give it a run here on the podcast. It's, uh, it's a joy to behold. Um, thank you so much for spending your time with us today and I look forward to part three very soon. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks again to Activated Probiotics for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more about them and see the results of Rebecca's great work by visiting activatedprobiotics.com.au and their Instagram and Facebook at Activated Probiotics. I hope you enjoyed listening to Straight Talking Natural Health. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, head over to my website at julesgalloway.com. There's a free quiz on there to see if you're at risk of burnout. I also have an amazing ebook called Heal Your Adrenals, which is a must for any woman with adrenal dysfunction, aka adrenal fatigue. When I'm not podcasting, I'm seeing clients all over the world via Zoom. I love working with fatigue, thyroid issues, autoimmunity, pyrrole disorder, mold illness and complex cases to name just a few. So why not book in and let's work together? All of this and more is available right now over at julesgalloway.com. That's all from me for the time being. I look forward to diving in with you again in the next episode. Bye for now.